Good morning. The scripture reading today is from the 18th chapter of John's Gospel, verses 1 through 11. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Morning. Like uh, like Kara said last time we were up here, that it's nice in the background, and I'm used to it like she is. I prepared the message with the sound of playing children right out right outside the door. So hopefully I can deliver it in the same conditions, and hopefully you're able to listen. I think I just heard Anna though, which so that's the distracting part when you when you hear your own kid, and then uh, we're we're in the season of Lent now, and like Jacob said. Uh, we're going to join in this, what's really a global exercise all over the, the world. Billions of Christians for the next few weeks will spend time considering the same question, why did Jesus have to die? So everybody else is doing it, we'll, we'll join in and do it too. And we're going to, to process that by looking, staying exclusively in the, in the Gospel of John, one of the four Gospels. If you were on the retreat last weekend, you know that uh, we we spent the whole weekend in the Gospel of John. We we went up to chapter 12 or so, um, and so but we didn't get to these last events. So we're, we're essentially picking up where we left off last weekend. Uh, the Act three of the story, the final events, the final hours, is the the title of the series of Jesus's life. This morning we've got the the first story in this series of events, which which is the arrest and the the passage you just heard read. Three things in particular that I'd like us to note from the passage. First, it shows us the greatest claim that's ever been made. Second, it shows us the greatest problem that's ever been faced. And third, it shows us the greatest mission that's ever been accomplished. The greatest claim that's ever been made, the greatest problem that's ever been faced, and the greatest mission that's ever been accomplished. So first, the greatest claim that's ever been made. And you see it in the the exchange that takes place at the very beginning of the passage. Uh, The crowd comes in, the group of, of soldiers and, and officials comes in and uh, Jesus takes the initiative and says, who are you looking for? As if he, he doesn't know. And, and they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. 
And their responses is pretty interesting. We're going to look at that in a second, in the second section. Um, but first, I want to just look at the statement itself. I am he and the significance of that. Doesn't seem especially noteworthy at first, you know, just kind of normal conversation. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, I am he. Um, slightly formal and polite, you know, like instead of saying, you know, that's me, or you're looking at him, or whatever. Um, I am he. Uh, but, but other than that, you know, it seems normal. It seems like a normal thing to, to say on the surface. If you dig deeper, you see that wrapped up in this little, polite, formal, seemingly insignificant statement is the greatest claim that's ever been made by a human being. And to, to convince you of that, it's going to take a few steps. So the first step is just... Uh, noting that in the, in the English translation, it's I am he, three words. In the Greek, in the original that the, the John has written in, is there, what is happening up here? This is just the, the sounds of the sun. Um, the, in the Greek that, that it's written in, it's just two words. It's just I am. Uh, there's no predicate. There's no object. So who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, I am. Um, and now, that, that could be nothing. That could be not a big deal. And some Greek scholars say it's not, that it's supposed to be just kind of an, an understood predicate. You know, you know from the context of the sentence that it's I am means I am he, short for I am he. But the majority of Greek scholars think that there's something kind of weird going on because it's the fourth time now, it's the fourth instance that Jesus has used this particular grammatical construction in the book of John. And every time he does it, it seems like there's something weird based on not the, not the grammatical context, but the context of the, the larger conversation. So the first time is with the woman at the well, John chapter 4. You remember this from last weekend if you were there. And uh, the woman says to him, I know the Messiah is coming. And Jesus says to the woman, I am. He, in parentheses. But just two words, I am. Uh, the, the second time is with the disciples. They're on the lake. There's a storm. Jesus comes to them walking on the water. You know, they're afraid before. Uh, in the storm, and then they're more afraid seeing somebody walking on the water. And so Jesus says, it is I, don't be afraid. That's the English translation. It is I, don't be afraid. But in the Greek, it's the same two words. I am, don't be afraid. Uh, and, and those still, too, are ambiguous, you know, open to interpretation. Maybe it's just the, the predicate, the object, he is understood. But the, the fourth time it happens, or the, the third time, the fourth time total, third time before it happens in the garden, uh, he says the same phrase three times. Three times in quick succession in the same conversation. And the third time he uses it, it's clear that there, there's something more going on. So he's having this debate with a crowd of people about who he is, about his identity, whether he's the, the Messiah or not, whether he's the guy that we've been waiting for or not. And uh, first time he says it, he says, unless you believe that I am he, um, you're, you're going to be dead in your sins. The second time he says, unless, uh, when you raise the Son of Man, when you raise him up, so referring to himself and to his crucifixion, when the Son of Man is raised up, you will know that I am. And then, the, again, those times it could just be I am he. But the, but the third time in this conversation, at the end of the conversation, uh, the, the crowd is coming back to him with some counter-argument. You know, they're, they're kind of becoming antagonistic and thinking he's not the Messiah. And they're coming back with some counter-argument uh, that has something to do with Abraham. It doesn't really matter. Um, but they're, they're appealing to Abraham as, as kind of undercutting Christ's authority. And Christ mumbles something about, well, you know, don't try to put Abraham against me. I know Abraham personally. And they're like, oh, really? You know Abraham personally? You're only 50 years old. How, how's that? And he says, before Abraham was created, I am. 
And not, not I was, not I am he. There's no, no other word to supply. Just before Abraham was created, I am. And so the English just leaves like that. In all its awkwardness, before Abraham was created, I am. And when he says that, they pick up stones, they pick up rocks to try to kill him. Why? In Exodus chapter 3, when uh, God comes to Moses in the burning bush and says, I want you to go deliver the Israelites. Moses says, well, I got to tell you, who should I tell them is sending me? Who should I tell them you are? What's your name? And to understand that question, you got to remember that in the ancient times, um, you know, polytheism um, was the assumed state of affairs. So today, monotheism predominates. Even if you're an atheist, you say, I don't believe there is a God. Um, you know, everybody assumes if there's a God, there's, there's one. But in ancient times, in pagan times, the assumption was there's lots of gods with lots of different names and lots of different powers. And so, Abraham, uh, so Moses is saying, which God are you? I can't just tell them God sent me. They're going to say, which God are you talking about? So what's your name? Which God are you? Which God should I tell them is sending me? And God says, all right, you need a name? Tell them, tell them I am is sending you. Tell them I am has sent you to rescue them. And it is, it is brilliant. I mean, it's, it's God, so of course it's brilliant. But it is, it is stunningly brilliant because in these two words, he says so much. He says, I have no beginning. I have no end. I don't depend on anything or anyone. In fact, everything else depends on me. And the presumption of taking this title upon himself, saying, my name is going to be I am. No object, just, just the subject and verb, I am. The presumption of that with respect to all the other purported gods is impossible to overstate. Because he's essentially saying, you, you want to know what my differentiating characteristic is going to be? I'm the God who actually is. I'm the God who actually exists. I am being itself. So I don't need any other name. I don't need to appeal to any special power or special differentiating trait because I'm the God who is there. It's, it's like a, the, the presumption of it is like when, when Prince renamed himself the artist. I am the artist. I don't need any other name. I'm the artist. It's like if a, if a restaurant, new restaurant opened up in the Time Warner Center and just called itself the restaurant. We're just the restaurant. There's all these other cute restaurants with their cute themes and cute concepts and cute little spins or takes. We're the restaurant. We're the definition of a restaurant. We're the restaurant that is. And that's what God is saying with this I am title. I'm the God who is. I'm the definition of God because I'm the only God. I am. And once you realize that, once you realize that's the very name of God, the most sacred name of God, the, God, the name of God that's only uttered once a year, in Jesus' day at Yom Kippur, only time it's uttered, and when they say it, everybody falls on their face. Once you realize that, then you figure out why, why people are picking up rocks to kill him. And you, you realize that there's this double meaning every time it's used in the book of John. So he's not just saying to the woman at the well, you know, I, I am the Messiah. He's saying, I, I am. I am. I'm not just God's chosen one. I am. He's not just saying to the disciples, it is I, it's me, Jesus, don't be afraid. He's saying, I am, don't be afraid afraid. It's the greatest claim that's ever been made. If he's saying that, if that's truly what it means, then it it puts everybody in this room and in in Western society in a real bind. Because what we want to believe is that Jesus is just kind of in there among all the rest. You know, we want to be able to, our, our modern 
paradigm is there's all these different religions, there's all these different religious teachers, and they all kind of more or less, I mean, there's, there's, they're, they're just kind of different flavors of the same thing. And they, they overlap, and they kind of all go the same direction, ultimately. So you just pick whichever one works for your personality or your family history or whatever. And Jesus royally messes that up. He, he refuses to be put on the shelf with all the rest. He refuses to be lumped in with Socrates and Buddha and Muhammad and Moses and Confucius. He sets himself above. He elevates himself. He presumptuously elevates himself and says, I am. And once he does that, then what you'd like to do, which is just kind of pick and choose, then that option is not available to you. Then you have to decide. You either have to become hostile toward him, you either have to try to knock him off the pedestal that he set himself upon, or you have to fall and worship. You have to submit yourself to him. That falling and worshiping, that falling down before him, that falling down before the name of God being uttered on Yom Kippur, that idea takes us to the to the second thing the passage shows us. So first, the the greatest claim that's ever been made, I am. Second, second thing we see in the passage is the greatest problem that's ever been faced, and it has to do with this falling down. So you see it with the soldiers' response to to what Jesus says. Uh, they the the group comes in and they say we're looking for Jesus. He says I am He. And then the, the weird thing that happens is they all it says they they draw back and they all fall on their backs. They all fall to the ground. What's this about? Um, well, it's not the only time we see this kind of thing in Scripture. In, in fact, it's kind of a consistent theme throughout the Bible. It's just a particularly dramatic example of it. And the the teaching is that anyone who comes into the presence of God ultimately will fall. Anyone who, who comes into God's presence loses their footing. And that's what we see happen with the soldiers. So, for example, in Ezekiel chapter 1, um, when the prophet Ezekiel first meets God, it says Ezekiel falls on his face, you know, before the presence of the Lord. Or in Isaiah chapter 6, when the prophet Isaiah first comes into the to God's throne room, um, it says that, you know, he sees the, the glory of God, and he says, Woe is me, I am lost, I am ruined, I am undone from a man of unclean lips. Woe is me. In other words, in, in contemporary parlance, he, he sees God and says, well, I'm, I'm pretty much screwed. You know, the, There's God, and here's me. There's a problem. When I look at myself and I look at him, there's a problem. Or in, uh, in Chronicles, in the book of Chronicles, when they, they dedicate the temple, um, the, they've got this whole series, this whole service plan for when God's going to come. They've, they've built this temple, spent seven years building it, and there's this day set for when God's presence is going to come and indwell the temple. And so they, they plan out this whole service, this whole liturgy. They've got these priests that are all going to do this, this beautiful thing, you know, to, to celebrate it when God comes down. So they're all standing up there. And what they forget is God's presence is going to come and inhabit the temple. And so his presence comes down, and the, the, the priests all lose their footing. Their, their feet go out, service over, liturgy out the window. God has come, and no one, no one in God's presence can keep their footing. That's what we see here with these soldiers. Jesus steps forward and says, I am, and they all fall. And he's always been the fullness of God. Jesus is the fullness of God in human form. But most of his life, it's, it's veiled, you know, it's hidden. Um, and it's the, the words of the, the Christmas carol, uh, veiled in flesh, the Godhead. See, so most of his life, he's kind of, it's kind of God incognito, God under wraps. Because he hasn't come to conquer, he's come to die. But... 
right here, this interesting moment in the Gospel of John, before he goes to lay down his life, he stands tall just for a moment and kind of barely just gives a peek, barely pulls back the veil. And just that, just that glory enough is is enough to knock the Roman soldiers on their backs. And we're not talking about a few guys here. This is, you know, it says a, a detachment, a cohort. It's a, it's a technical term. It's a military unit. It's like a battalion. It's at least a couple hundred guys, if not more. Because they're thinking, well, you know, there may be a crowd with them. We've got to arrest the other people around them. So they bring this huge force, and these battle-hardened guys all fall on their backs. Again, we, we see Scripture confronting our modern paradigm about the way we'd like for things to work. Um, before it was, you know, Jesus confronts our idea of how religions should work and should fit together. Here we see Scripture confronting our idea of spirituality. Because there's a lot of people in the city that say, well, you know, I'm not um, religious per se. I mean, I don't re- believe in organized religion. Who does anymore? But I'm spiritual. I'm a spiritual person. I want to, you know, be in touch with the eternal in some sense. I want to have transcendent experiences of some sort, at least. And, I, and with that, I hope to you know, experience these um, positive emotions that people associate with spirituality, like peace and meaning and purpose. And so I'm, I'm just kind of cozy up to that, cozy up to the eternal, cozy up to the divine love, this universal consciousness that's out there, and kind of tap into it and let that infuse me. I don't need church to do that. It's a great idea, but it's not really how it works at all. Not when it's genuine. Um, so, Rudolf Otto was this uh, philosopher, German philosopher of religion, the late 19th, early 20th century, and his big idea that's influential to this day was that in studying religious experience, the core of religious experience, when it's genuine, is what he calls coming face-to-face with the mysterium tremendum. That's the Latin, the terrifying mystery. And he says, look, when, if, when people really meet God, when they report about that experience, it's, it's not fun and games. It's, it's scary. I want to read you something from Aldous Huxley, the, the famous intellectual, the brave new world guy, not a Christian, uh, a religious agnostic. He talks, uh, he writes about an experience of, of feeling God's presence to be very near at one point in his life and how it wasn't something that he was excited by. It was actually something he was, he was scared by. He says, I found myself all at once on the brink of panic. This, I suddenly felt, was going too far. Too far, even though the going was into intenser beauty and deeper significance. The fear, as I analyze it in retrospect, was of being overwhelmed, of disintegrating under a pressure of reality greater than a mind that was accustomed to living in a cozy world of symbols could possibly bear. The literature of religious experience abounds in references to the pains and terrors overwhelming those who have come too suddenly face-to-face with some manifestation of the mysterium tremendum, he uses Otto's phrase. In theological language, this fear is due to the incompatibility between man's egotism and the divine purity, between man's self-aggravated separateness and the infinity of God. By unregenerate souls, the divine light at its full blaze can be apprehended only as a burning purgatorial fire. Better to rush headlong into the comforting darkness of selfhood, anything rather than the burning brightness of unmitigated reality, anything. 
not not a Christian, not quoting from the Bible. It's talking about this experience of of seeing God and saying, I want to run. I want to run because something that bright and that beautiful to somebody that's as selfish and impure as I am, how can that be interpreted as anything but consuming, as anything but dangerous? And, you know, he nails it. He nails the reason for it. It's my impurity. He said, I felt like I was disintegrating under the pressure of true reality versus my falsehood. And it's, it's remarkable how similar that is to what Isaiah says when he comes into God's presence in chapter 6. He says, I'm coming undone. I'm disintegrating because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I, I love, I think it's interesting that he, he focuses on his, his mouth, his words. I'm made of unclean lips. He says, forget about anything I've done or haven't done. Just my mouth, just my words. I can't come into the presence of God. And I would venture to guess that that's, that's true of all of us. You, know, you may think that you're a, a, a pretty decent person. You've got a pretty good heart. Um, but what if, we, what if we just took your words? Not just forget about your actions, just your words. What if we just had the tapes of your life so far and just played them over these speakers? You know, who could bear it? Who could bear it? Who could stand? Nobody. No one's lips are clean. And I'm not, not talking here about, you know, uh, so-called profanity, you know, four-letter words. That's just normal vocabulary in New York, you know, so there's nothing particularly unclean about that. I'm talking about truly profane words. I'm talking about lying to make yourself look better. I'm talking about the mean, hurtful, spiteful things you've said to people you love the most. I'm talking about gossip, just skewering people behind their back. I'm talking about flattery, saying things you don't really mean or believe to get somebody to like you or to get something you want. Truly profane, truly filthy language. You say, oh, I, I, I don't mean it. You know, everybody talks that way. That doesn't reflect who I really am. And what I'd say is just try to say that when you come into the presence of God. Just try to use that excuse. And I guarantee you, you will not be able to get it out. You will stammer and you will start and then finally you will fall on your face and say, woe is me, I'm a man, I'm a woman of unclean lips. I'm screwed, I'm screwed because there's God and here's me. It's the greatest problem that human beings have ever faced. This problem of God's glory and God's light and God's beauty and God's majesty being damning in comparison our impurity. And it's, it's illustrated in this, this really powerful way when Jesus steps forward and shows his glory just for a second. I am, I am, and an entire battalion of Roman soldiers is knocked flat. So fortunately, there's a, there's a third thing we learn from the passage. We don't have to stop there. Um, first, you know, this greatest claim that's ever been made, I am. Second, greatest problem ever faced who can stand. But third, the third thing the passage shows us is the greatest mission ever accomplished. You see it as the, the exchange between Jesus and the soldiers continues. So they, they come, he says, who are you looking for? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. They, they probably yell it the first time, you know, Jesus of Nazareth. And he steps forward and says, I am. They all fall back. And then there's this part where it's like he's kind of making fun of them. You know, then they stand back up and he's like, who, who'd you say you were looking for? And they're, they're, you know, probably mumbling this time, well, Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, well, you know, I, I told you that I'm him, you know, like, what's the problem? Are you deaf? You know, let's, let's get going. And then he says, oh, oh, but by the way, if it's me that you're looking for, I think we can agree, we can let all these other guys go, right? 
And, you know, at that point, they're not going to argue with him because he's just knocked them all flat. So what are they going to say? Again, the reason they had brought all the soldiers in the first place was if you're going to arrest an insurrectionist, you usually arrest the inner circle too, anybody that's with them, or else you're going to have problems later on. But Jesus says, we're not going to follow protocol this time. Everybody cool with that? And they say, okay, you know. And the, the, the meaning of that, the reason of that, John tells us, he, Jesus says, it says that Jesus wanted to be able to stay true to the prayer he had prayed earlier, which is, I have not lost any of those that you have given me. That's the, the surface meaning. But like with the I am statements, there's a deeper meaning here, too. Because ironically, or maybe not ironically, I don't really know whether it's on purpose or not, but the, the word, let them go, take me and let them go. The word let them go is also the word forgive them. Take me and forgive them. And what you see in this shielding of the disciples from the arrest, with Christ submitting himself in their place, is this foreshadowing of the much greater and much deeper shielding and submitting that's about to take place in in just a few hours. Because when Christ submits himself to the cross, he shields not only the disciples, but he shields all of us, and he shields us not only from arrest, but from something a lot worse. That's what we were just talking about. He, and he refers to it as he's leaving. He says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? What's the cup? Well, you see it all through the, the Old Testament. The cup is this image, this metaphor for what, what we were just talking about a second ago, the kind of the, the divine wrath um, towards sin and unholiness. It's what you know the bad guys have to drink, God always says. But he also says it's what Israel is going to have to drink if they don't shape up. The cup of wrath, the cup of staggering, it's even called in some places. Who can stand? The cup of staggering. This cup of coming into contact with God's holiness and being consumed. And Jesus says, I'm going to go drink that. Me, the I am, the only one that has pure lips, the only one that has clean lips, I'm going to go take that. And he says essentially to, to God the exact same thing that he says to the soldiers with respect to the disciples. He says to God with respect to us, you know, take me, let them go. Give me the cup, let the cup pass from them so that I can say to God, I haven't lost any of those that you've given me. And the, the uniqueness of this arrangement is absolutely breathtaking when you consider the alternatives that, that are locked in this gridlock, this tired binary debate between uh, secularism on the one hand and traditional religion on the other hand. Because secularism says, well, okay, uh, there's not going to be a judgment day. There is no cup. You know, the cup is a fairy tale. There's, there's no blinding light. It's all kind of just made up. Um, so bad news is the world's never going to be put right. You know, we're just stuck with what we've got. It's just going to go on like this. Um, but good news, you don't have to be afraid. You can kind of do whatever you want, whatever you can get away with, with impunity, more or less. So at least you got that going for you. That's what secularism says. Bad news, good news. Traditional religion says, oh, there's going to be a judgment day. The cup is very real. Um, so the good news is everything will be put right someday. We're not stuck in this predicament. God's going to fix everything. That's the good news. The bad news is you better watch out. You better be careful. You better be extra sure that you're good enough, that you're on the right side, that you're pure, that you do the right things, because if you don't, then you're going to get swept under the flood as well. And into that impasse, Christianity comes with this, you know, unforeseen possibility. Nobody could think this up except God himself, which is there's going to be a judgment day, but the judge himself has come to be judged in our place. 
Jesus is the judge who was judged. He comes and he carries the sins, the impurities of humanity on his back into that blinding, damning, purifying light. Because he's the only one that can do it. And so that then, by him being the one that falls, as he's carrying the cross up the hill, continually staggering, continually falling under the weight of it, by him falling, we can then stand on the last day. We can then stand before God. I want to close by addressing two different groups of people. First, those of you that aren't really sure if you believe all this. Um, and then second, those of you who do believe it, but are frustrated and, and disappointed by the way that, that your belief fails to affect the way you live. So first, to those of you who, who aren't sure you believe it. That's fine. I mean, I, 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 it's understandable. It's hard to believe. Um, but what I would challenge you with is to take seriously the way that Jesus messes up your, your paradigm of kind of wanting to be able to, to pick and choose and take a little from here and a little bit from that. Because, you know, what we want to say is, well, I find some inspiration in Christianity. Or there's, there's some good teachings of Christianity. And Jesus doesn't let you do that. So there's, there's intellectual integrity in falling down and worshiping. There's intellectual integrity in being hostile and attacking. I respect both of those equally. They're both consistent. But what has no intellectual integrity at all, what is just an untenable position, ultimately, is this. Well, you know, I, I mean, I like the Bible. I, I go to church sometimes. But come on, I don't, I don't believe the whole thing. I mean, I'm not going to go in all the way. Jesus doesn't give you that option because he sets himself up as supreme. Then lastly, uh, to those who believe it, or say you believe it, or try to believe it, want to believe it, um, but you don't change the way that you think you should change if, if you do believe it. Uh, because, you know, the, the, the assumption is, and this is what the rest of the New Testament goes on to say, if this is true, um, then it should change everything, absolutely everything. It should make us new people. It should give us a new confidence. It should give us new peace. It should give us a new fearlessness. If, that's, if it's true, it should help us to not just stand on the last day. It should help us to stand as new people now. If it's true, and if you believe it, it should filter down into every area of your life, these truths. And you say, well, you know, I believe it. It's not happening for me, or it's happening a lot more slowly than I'd like. There's, there's one more thing that happens in the passage that is for you and, and for me. Um, and it's the way that Peter responds to the whole thing and the way that, that Jesus then responds to Peter. So Peter, remember, up to this point has been in, in Jesus' grad school, essentially, for three years, you know, being tutored by the greatest teacher who ever lived. And the last several months in particular... Uh, Jesus has been talking specifically a lot about what's going to happen at the end. He says, I'm going to die. I came to drink the cup. That's the whole point. Um, they're going to come and take me. I'm going to Jerusalem for this purpose. This is what's going to happen. He's telling them all this to prepare them so they're ready when it, when it does happen. And so then the, the actual moment comes, and Jesus is you know, ready to hand himself over. And in comes Peter to the rescue, barreling in from off stage, sword drawn, you know, battle roar, starts hacking off people's ears. You know, don't worry, Jesus, I can stop this, I got this. And what should be of great comfort to us is that Jesus at that moment doesn't turn to the soldiers and say, 
you know what? I changed my mind. Take him. Take him instead. Because, I mean, really, that's what he should be thinking. I'm supposed to die for this? I'm, he can't, we've talked, we've gone over and over again, and he can't get this through his head? This, I mean, how, how could he be that slow to let it filter down, to let it change the way he acts? But he doesn't say that. Instead, he, he just quietly turns to Peter and says, Okay, Peter, let's go over this one more time. The cup, the Father, drink me. You know, this is incredibly patient, unyielding love. And so as we struggle to let it filter down into our lives and the, the way we live, as we inevitably will, it should comfort us that, that regardless of whatever degree of ineptitude we bring to the situation, he's not going to give up on us. Let's pray. Father, we're amazed by the beauty of your plan to rescue us. We're amazed by the way that you reconciled your great purifying holiness that's blinding to us and your great love and mercy for us. And we know that the only way you were able to reconcile those things was it was it immense personal cost and pain to yourself. During these weeks leading up to Easter, I pray that you'd impress it upon us anew, that we'd see it with new eyes, that each year you'd give us an additional layer of understanding that we'd be able to go in a different direction with it than we've gone before, and that as we consider the most beautiful and difficult thing that's ever happened, that you would change us, that you would change us, and that you would encourage us when we fail to change. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.